Well, after a week away, we return to our verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Corinthians. And so, I invite you, please take your Bible, follow along with us, and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, today we'll be looking at verses 1-11, through 11, 1 Corinthians 6, 1-11. through 11. It's been a couple of weeks, let me remind you of the context in the previous chapter. Remember, chapter 5, a man had his father's wife and the, and the Corinthians were boasting about it. The church had failed to judge sin in their midst. They're putting up with this blatant sinfulness in their church and not dealing with it. Well, in chapter 6, actually the theme continues. Because now we are seeing that they are letting outsiders judge them instead. So just think about how upside down this is. This worldly wisdom, as Paul describes it, had turned things upside down in the church. They weren't judging sin in their midst. They were tolerating it. And at the same time, they were letting outsiders judge unresolved disputes in their midst. So, righteous judgment that wasn't taking place in the church, righteous judgment that wasn't taking place, and instead outsourcing it to the world as well. That's how this theme continues here. So, our passage, uh, lawsuits against believers. 1 Corinthians 6, 1-11. through Let's keep this in mind, brethren, remembering that this is God's Word. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law? Before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. Uh, Pray with me again. Father, we stop and we acknowledge that, Lord, light outside of us will do no good unless there is light within. And Father, we know that you are the light of the world, that your Holy Spirit is the only lamp that can enlighten our hearts. So we pray, Lord, that as your word is read and proclaimed, that you would help us, Father, to see that you might be the delight of our soul. Help us and speak to us, we pray, in Christ's name. 
Amen. <clears throat> Did you know that one of the longest running, the one of the most enduring formats of reality TV here in America is what's labeled, what's called courtroom TV. Courtroom reality TV. Uh, it's been running for a long time, over 40 years ago. In 1981, the People's Court debuted on television. And ever since then, there has been some sort of, of reality courtroom TV show playing on public television here in America. You know, think of maybe Judge Judy is the popular one. It ran for over 25 years. Reality courtroom TV, of course, centers around small claims court. Personal disputes, conflicts, not the breaking of law, but just people not getting along with other people. And the, the attraction of, these, of this reality TV is that, allegedly, these are real cases and real people. And they often contain this kind of outrageous flair of unpredictability. They're popular because people will sue one another over the most trivial of things. People will argue and try to get a payout over, you know, from the silliest of, of inconveniences. And Americans just love to watch it on television. We live, of course, in a world of conflict. We live in a culture obsessed with personal rights, personal property, and it's that often that obsession, even to the point of absurdity, that people find entertaining to watch on television. Well, as I've said before, you know, our world is really not that much different than ancient Corinth. You see, in Corinth, they had small claims court as well. They had public disputes of people suing other people. Uh, but this, instead of taking place on TV or maybe in a downtown courthouse, they took place in the open, in the town square. Their courtroom was in the center of town. It was open to all. It was right out um, uh, uh, in the open and available to all to come and witness. And, and just like now, nowadays, back then, citizens would often gather, curious, to kind of watch for entertainment, for amusement. But I want you to imagine, though, in Corinth at this time, you have what is nothing less than a brand new religion that's sweeping the world. And at the center of this religion is a savior, not like the powerful military figures that were so highly esteemed in that day, not like the ancient sage who, who brought wisdom and rhetoric that fixes all of life's problems, but this savior of this religion was a suffering servant. One who gave up his personal rights for the good of others. One who loves his enemies and does good to those who hate him and abuse him and use him. One who gave his life to suffer and die to redeem guilty sinners, to pay a debt that they owed because of their own sinful, willful negligence. And this religion claims to follow in the footsteps of the Savior, to show mercy to others, to forgive, to practice self-sacrificial love, and to look not to this world, but to the world to come as the ultimate inheritance. And yet, among the most well-known adherents of this religion 
Members of the church were regularly wronging one another, suing one another, and appearing in these very public courtrooms to battle it out, to be seen by all. This is kind of like a very popular and well-known Christian or Christians regularly appearing on Judge Judy TV, arguing with one another, fighting for their rights. That's the picture. Can you imagine this? It's almost comically embarrassing, isn't it? That's what's going on here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And and that's why Paul is so horrified in many respects that, that, that that he shames them. He essentially shames them for how selfish they are, how sinful the spectacle is. Yet we might ask at this point, why did this happen? How could this ever happen? Well, it goes back to what we've seen all along in these first five chapters so far. This is a church that is so infatuated with the values and ideas of this world, including the world placing such a high value on personal rights and individual desires. They value this so much that they were actually defrauding and cheating other members of the church to get what they wanted. And this is a church that's so divided in cliques and factions that they didn't even give a second thought to suing another church member when they had disputes. And this is a church that's so caught up in their own needs, in their own wants, their own desires, that they were willing to let the witness of the church just be dragged through the mud just as long as they got what they wanted. Brethren, at the heart of this, though, is a church that had forgotten its identity. They had forgotten that their Messiah, the suffering servant, called us to walk in his footsteps the way of the cross. And they had forgotten both their sinful past as well as their glorious future. They had forgotten these things because they had let the values of this world cloud their thinking and shape their behavior. Brethren, is there anyone here among us today that won't admit that these things are also a constant struggle and battle for us as well? How easy is it to default simply to self and what I want and what I deserve and to get what I am owed and to make sure that those people who wrong me get what they deserve as well. Brethren, today then I want you to see how the cross of Jesus Christ is God's solution to conflict in the church. I want you to see the centrality of the church and our role in handling conflict with one another. And I want you to see again what it means to put on the mind of Christ to approach life's difficulties upon, uh, through the wisdom and power of the cross and to pursue a Christ-like life. Sacrificial self-giving for the good of others. Once again, this is a call for us to make Christ the center of our hearts, the center of our homes, the center of our churches. To work through this, uh, we'll gather our thoughts under three broad headings. Kingdom conflict, kingdom justice, and kingdom inheritance. That'll help us make sense of this passage today. Kingdom conflict, kingdom justice, 
and kingdom inheritance. I want to think first about conflict in God's kingdom. How do we view conflict when it arises in God's kingdom, the church? Look again here at verse 1. It's kind of a note of horror in Paul's tone as he turns to another problem in the church. And he says, when one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? I want you to see that the note of horror in Paul's tone is not that simply that there's conflict in the church. We do live in a fallen world. Uh, we all stumble in many ways. Conflict happens. It happens in the best of churches. It happens in the best of marriages. It happens among the most godliest of Christians. The real issue when Christians face conflict is not necessarily does conflict happen, uh, but rather how do you handle conflict when it happens? And that's what Paul is horrified at. How dare you handle conflict in this way? How dare you go to law before the unrighteous when you have disputes with one another? It's the audacity of doing that. The foolishness of doing that. Now, a couple things need to be clear here. When Paul says they go before the unrighteous, he's not demeaning the courts. He's not implying that they are evil or illegitimate. He's just using a technical term. A term to refer to an unbeliever. Um, the righteous are those who are righteous by faith. The unrighteous is another way of speaking of unbelievers. They're unrighteous. They are not counted righteous in Christ. Another important fact here is that this is dealing with personal conflict and grievance, grievances. This is not speaking about anything that might be criminal activity. Uh, we need to be really clear on this. Because in recent years, some churches, um, a very prominent, even reformedish denomination, has covered up abuse in their churches by claiming to handle things in-house. Um, absolutely not. This is not referring to criminal behavior at all. We know from Romans 13 that the state possesses legitimate authority to punish evildoers. We know from the book of Acts that Paul repeatedly appealed to Roman law, to Caesar, and clung to his rights as a citizen when he was being mistreated legally, criminally that is. This isn't speaking about criminal cases, this is speaking about civil cases and personal disputes. The church should never handle criminal activity in-house. That's not her commission. She doesn't have that authority. God has entrusted that to the state. But the issue here is civil disputes, personal disputes in the church, the Corinthians were running to people who do not know God and asking them to judge. They're airing the dirty laundry of the church before an unbelieving world. Maybe even saying that and then asking them to clean it as well. That's why Paul is horrified. The gospel doesn't provide us with the wisdom and tools to be reconciled with one another. What good is it to claim that we're now reconciled with God? Now, I want you to stop here, though, and think about this theologically for a moment. On a practical level, it, you know, it's kind of easy to see why we wouldn't want to air the church's dirty laundry before, uh, you know, the watching world and hurt our witness. 
But, but theologically, why is this so concerning? I ask it this way because that's where Paul goes. He doesn't just drop a commandment. Hey, obey the law. Stop suing one another. And rather, all throughout this letter, as he's done, he approaches each sin and each issue through the lens of the gospel in order to change their perspective. Look at verse 2 and 3 again. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? The theological ground for why you're not to sue your fellow church member is found in eschatology. Eschatology, of course, is a term that refers to our theology of the end times. Last things. Eternity. And that's where Paul grounds his doctrine of their behavior in the end times. And, you know, don't ever let anyone tell you that your view of the end times is unimportant. Right? In some respect, we can't acknowledge there are some secondary differences here. But it has everything to do with how you live in the present. Paul appeals to a proper theology of the end times, implying you don't know this, and that's why you're falling into this sin. Don't you know that the saints will judge the world? In our study of Daniel um, about a year ago, Daniel 7.22, we saw how when Jesus Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father following His resurrection, that the judgment of the world was given to the saints of the Most High. We heard that earlier from Matthew 19 as well. Jesus promises the disciples, you're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That, of course, is a way of saying the saints will judge the world. We're told in the book of Ephesians that, that through our union with Christ, we are seated with Him in the heavenly places as He rules and He reigns over all things. Something we see also in Revelation 20 as well. This is what Paul is referring to. Do you not know the saints will judge the world? The saints, the, the people of God, the Christians will participate with Jesus Christ in the final judgment of the world. And, and, and brethren, think about how kind of awesome that is. Let me ask you, put it to you this way, let me ask you practically. Do you, do you think of the final judgment this way? What do, you, what do you think of? What do you picture when you contemplate the final judgment? Do you, see, do you see yourself sitting in the docket waiting to stand before the judge? Do you see yourself kind of anticipating uh, uh, some shame and some sorrow because your sins and your failings are going to be exposed even though you know, okay, I'm going to be forgiven in the end? Or do you see yourself sitting alongside and with the judge? If you're a Christian, final judgment has already happened for you. It's already happened. It happened at the cross where Christ was crucified in your place. It was sealed in your conversion with the Holy Spirit granting you faith in Christ. 
And yes, it awaits a consummation, a bringing to completion when we will meet Christ in the air and usher Him down to judge the earth and we will be instantly and perfectly made righteous forever and ever. But your final judgment is over. It's already happened. And if you know this, then you can receive these scriptures that speak of judging the world. You can receive them rightly knowing that you're not going to be standing down there with a judge right here passing final judgment, but that you will be up there on thrones with him judging the world. And Paul's point in this, do you not know? Your behavior shows that you don't know this. That you don't believe this theology. The way that you're treating one another demonstrates that you don't understand the end times. Brethren, theology has far-reaching implications for how we live. And so here's this church. They thought they had great wisdom. They thought they reigned as kings. And Paul is saying, you don't even know basic eschatology. If you're to judge the world, how trivial then are these little lawsuits and these grievances? Yeah, maybe there are huge sums of money involved here. Maybe there's lots of property at stake. But what is that compared to eternity? Brethren, when our eyes are fixated on this world and influenced by this world, our understanding of the Christian life is far too small. It's too limited. It's too earthly. And so, to the Christian, our future inheritance and our role in God's kingdom must change the way we live right now. If Christians and saints will judge the world, why would we go to unbelievers for personal disputes? Why wouldn't we be competent to judge these matters ourselves? Paul concludes this thought then in verse 5 and 6 by by doubling down and kind of laying on an element of shame. He says, I say this to your shame. Can Can it be that there is no one wise enough among you to settle a dispute? Remember back in chapter 4, he said, I don't wish to shame you. I just want to warn you. Well, he's kind of abandoned that strategy now. It's like, no, no, now I am going to shame you. That's for sure. And don't miss the sarcasm here in his words because they boasted in their wisdom. They boasted in leaders with great rhetoric. And he's like, with all of your magnificent leaders, those who you, know, you esteem way high, more high than, highly than, than, than you esteem me, is there nobody among you that can handle these trivial disputes? Brethren, this is a church that didn't know their identity and their place in God's eternal plan of redemption. This is a church that didn't know this because they placed too high a value on the world and the values of this world. This is a church that had left the wisdom of the cross far behind. So this teaches us the theology, the people of God, even eternity. It must change how we behave in the present. It teaches us the centrality of the church, even in handling disputes and conflict among us. This teaches us that personal disputes are not ultimately personal between Christians. They are corporate 
And they are to be handled corporately, and it teaches us that God has given us the wisdom to handle such earthly conflicts and disputes ourselves. This is kingdom conflict. But to see the full picture, we need to keep moving. And so secondly, and moving a bit quicker here, kingdom justice. What do I mean by kingdom justice? Well, when there's conflict in the kingdom, what is justice in the kingdom? That's what I want us to think about. Look at verse 7 and 8. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Put you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Just like in the last chapter, there's two sins going on here. There's the individual behavior, but there's also the church's response. And both are important, but Paul's main concern is the church's response more than he is the individuals committing the sin itself. We see here that some in the church were wronging and defrauding one another. Uh, The phrase suffer wrong is actually related to the word unrighteous up in verse 1. Paul is subtly saying, someone in your church are acting like unbelievers. The word defrauded means rob, cheat, swindle. Horrible sin going on in the church. Right? That's part of those who you not, should not even eat with, he just finished saying up in chapter 5, verse 11. But I want to ask the question, what does justice in God's economy require in the face of such sin? Before we answer that, though, we need to first ask, why are unbelievers not equipped to judge personal disputes in the church? Why? It's not because unbelievers don't know justice. It might render an unjust verdict. And it's not because the church's understanding of justice and fairness will always render the right verdict. Why aren't unbelievers equipped to judge personal disputes in the church? Well, it's because while justice, justice is known by all because we're made in the image of God, only the gospel teaches us and reveals love and mercy and compassion and gentleness and forgiveness and humility and self-giving. Unbelievers are not equipped to judge personal disputes between church members because unbelievers cannot account for the wisdom of the cross. They don't have the revelation. They don't have the capacity. So brethren, what we see here is that when we are wronged, there is something more important than strict justice. In the Christian life, there is something more important than getting what you rightly deserve here and now. To the Christians that hurt us, there is something more important than them just getting the punishment they deserve. 
See, the world can understand an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But they cannot understand love and mercy and forgiveness. The cross. And that is what undergirds all of our relationships with one another. And that's what Paul is harping on here in verses 7 and 8. These words in 7 and 8, like they make no sense to anyone except to a Christian filled with the Spirit of God. Because he says, it's better for you to suffer wrong than to go to court. It's better for you to be cheated than it is for the world to judge your case. To have lawsuits at all is already a defeat for you because it doesn't matter who's right and it doesn't matter who's wrong. It doesn't matter who the verdict is. If church members go before the secular world to judge their cases, everybody loses. The winner, the loser, and the church. That's a defeat. Just think of how doing that, it brings shame to the church. Think of how doing that reveals and even fuels selfishness and love for the world. Think of how doing that, you lose an opportunity to love and serve and give up your rights for the good of another. This is the way of the cross. Our possessions, our rights, our ideas of fairness and justice in this life is not what is most important in God's economy. If you have trouble with this, I encourage you to read Matthew chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount. Jesus comes to this theme again and again and again. He says in Matthew 5, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's justice. That's something everybody can agree with. But Jesus says, I say to you, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Brother, once again, we see that the Christian life is a call to suffer. And sometimes this includes suffering personal loss for the sake and the well-being and good of others. That's what Paul has been painting this picture all along. From, from chapter 1 all the way to here. This, this glorious, all-encompassing vision of the cross. And that's what he means when he says, I came and, and determined to know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. That's more than just preaching sermons that always come back to Christ in the Gospel. Although I would argue it's certainly not anything less than that. No, keeping Christ and Him crucified uh, at the center of our church entails a way of life that is marked by the cross. Humility, self-sacrificial self-giving, and love. The peace and unity of the church and the maintaining of love toward one another is far more important in God's eyes than our own personal rights. This is kingdom justice. Well, third and finally, kingdom conflict, kingdom justice. Now let's see kingdom inheritance. Kingdom inheritance. This is shocking in some respect. 
this justice that is to guide and govern the church, God's kingdom. But at the same time, we need to remember that our God is not just unconcerned about us here and now. It's not that personal rights and personal property don't exist or aren't important. It's just that they take, um, um, there's something that places a greater, that is a greater importance over them. But in this closing few verses here, we see that God does not just expect us to suffer all kinds of wrong without batting an eye, because he kind of wraps this up by giving a very sober warning to those who would defraud. Look at verses 9 and 10 here. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. God does not turn a blind eye to those who are defrauding others. I mean, instead, we see here one of the most sobering warnings in all of Scripture. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, says, You can be assured that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. To inherit means to possess, to, to take possession of. The kingdom of God refers to eternal life. Life in the presence of God. And so this warning in this sense, it reinforces that those who, um, um, who are wronged will be avenged at the last day. But it also serves as a warning as well, reminding us of the dark future of judgment that awaits those who persist in sin. Just think about how Paul says, do not be deceived. He says this because the real threat of deception is all around us. Don't be tricked. Don't be fooled. Don't listen to the lies of the flesh, the lies of Satan, the lies of the world. Sin's laughed at all around us. Sexual immorality, it's natural. It's bodily function. You can't help it. Greed. Greed's a virtue in our culture. We're obsessed with prosperity. It's rewarded. The entire economy is built on, in in many respects, fueling our greed. It's a virtue in America. Homosexuality, that's just living out who you really are. Drunkenness, it's, well, it's kind of a normal way of life. It's kind of funny. Everybody does it. Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. Just because the world around you thinks that these things are no big deal, just, to, just because the world thinks that, that these, are, these are normal, that everybody does it, just because you look around and you see people doing this and getting away with it, not even getting away with it, but prospering and doing it, don't be deceived to think that the judgment of, the, of God will not fall eventually on these people. Here he speaks of the sexually immoral. Those who persist unrepentantly in sexual activity outside of marriage will not inherit the kingdom of God. He speaks of idolaters. Those who persist unrepentantly in the worship and adoration of false gods will not enter the kingdom of God. He mentions adulterers. Those who persist unrepentantly in giving themselves sexually or otherwise in breaking of their marriage vows to someone other than their spouse, will not enter into eternal life. 
and he mixes homosexuality. And um, in the original, it's actually two different phrases that the ESV kind of condenses into one. Um, one phrase refers to someone who, uh, as we might say in our day, doesn't have homosexual urges, but who participates in homosexual activity for other reasons, um, uh, maybe for financial or social reasons. And the other term is really all-encompassing. It refers to any and all same-sex activity. Those who persist in homosexual activity will not enter heaven. He mentions thieves, those who steal from others. He mentions the greedy, those who lust after riches and material possessions and don't mind trampling on others to get what they want. And he mentions drunkards, those who linger long over the bottle and fall into sin when they uh, overdrink. And he mentions revilers, those who cause division, those who stir up dissension, those who disturb the peace of the brethren. And he mentions swindlers, those who deceive and cheat and defraud others. Those who persist in these things unrepentantly, those who commit such sins without concern, those whose lives represent a pattern of such behavior are not citizens of heaven, will not enter the kingdom of God, By their fruits you shall know them. It's not a mystery. It's sobering, isn't it, brethren? Isn't it easy to look at this passage and say, okay, yeah, Paul's saying don't sue one another. All right, I got that. Christians are never to sue other Christians. Therefore, I've obeyed this commandment. It's all good. This is what this passage entails. But it's so much bigger than that. Such a deeper issue than that. Eternity is at stake in this sense. Now, of course, you know, Paul is not saying that if you've committed these sins, you're disinherited. Absolutely not. Neither is he saying that if you sometimes struggle with these sins, you're outside the kingdom of God. Christians stumble and fall into sin all the time. The very the fact that he gives this list is proof that these sins are not uncommon among Christians. He's speaking about of of those who are controlled by these sins, those who are characterized by these sins, those who do nothing about these sins. The godly hate their sin. They deplore it. They fight against it. They never give up. They seek and rely upon the help of the church to fight their sin. They don't deny it. They don't explain explain it away. They don't make peace with it. They don't shrug their shoulders at it. They pursue, eschatologically again, who they will be perfect and righteous in eternity. They pursue that right now in the present, even imperfect as their obedience, as our obedience is. This is a sober and firm warning. But brethren, as Paul always does, he can't simply conclude with that. He always brings it back to the Gospel. And that's what we see in verse 11 here. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. Some of the Corinthians were adulterers. Some of the Corinthians were homosexuals. 
Some of the Corinthians were idolaters. Some of the Christian, uh, Corinthians were, were thieves and robbers. Don't believe the lie of our culture that such people can never change. Don't believe those who say that homosexuality is a fixed orientation and conversion therapy is a fraud that does damage. Don't believe those who say that sexual addiction or drunkenness or other forms of addiction are somehow part of our essential identity and impossible to fully break. This is proof right here. Some Such were some of you. Your life was marked by these things, but now you are different. Now you're a new creation. Now you're to live like who you are in Christ. And he uses these three verbs here to speak of kind of um, the very same thing. Washed, sanctified, justified. Um, All three verbs has God as the actor. God is the one who has done this. It's not something the Corinthians did for themselves. All three verbs are in the aorist tense, which means that it's a completed act. It's not ongoing, and it's not uncertain. It doesn't wait some sort of final consummation. You were washed from the filth of your former lifestyle. Titus 3.5, the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. You were sanctified. You were set apart for holy living. You are not of this world. You were justified. You are counted righteous in Christ forever and perfectly righteous in Him. So Paul is saying, hey, hey, live like who you are. Be who you are. Pursue who you are. Look back to the prior work of Christ and how the Holy Spirit did this to you. Look forward to your future inheritance and what you will be. And let those things determine and dictate your behavior in the present. That's motivation for godly living. It's not found in the law. It's not found in judgment, do this or else. It's not found in your own willpower and own strength. It's not found in, oh, I hope to obtain this at the last day. It's found in the reality that God in Christ has already removed all of your sins. He has already begun the work of ethical transformation in you. He's already granted you forgiveness and right standing with Him. He's already granted you an eternal inheritance. And in light of those gospel realities, remembering our identity. Remembering our kingdom inheritance. It guides us so that we no longer live like the wicked, but we adorn the gospel and live and embody Life as the children of God. That's kingdom inheritance. Brethren, as we bring this to a final conclusion here, I just want to press upon you. Once again, this passage is about so much more than just instructions on suing one another. It reframes our perspective on life. Away from, hey, as we heard earlier in the reading of the law, away from worldly possessions, away from self-righteousness, away from living in this life. And it gives us other people 
in the body of Christ and the church as a whole is more important than me in every respect. And it gives us this larger perspective of how the world often throws these values upside down. And, and you know, just practically speaking, don't, don't we see all around us in our day the, the church kind of following the world, you know, chasing after the world, longing for the approval of the world? How we're tempted to walk around on eggshells around unbelievers because we might offend them? How we often are tempted to let our society's views on tolerance um, inform our faith and practice. How often we can be deceived by thinking that the unbelieving world's idea of judge not lest you be judged is, is the right interpretation of that verse. How often we can be tempted to let mainstream culture determine for us what sins are forgivable and what sins are not. The unbelieving world is not called or equipped to judge the church. We are called to approach it all through the lens of the cross. Whether we're dealing with sin in the church, whether we're dealing with sin in our own hearts, we are to look to Christ, we are to look to what He has done, and we look forward to that confidence and pursue who we will be and who we are before God right now in letting that inform all of our behavior and conduct toward one another. Brethren, this is a call to make Christ uh, the center of our churches, the center of our hearts, the center of our homes, and to follow the mind of Christ and embody Him for the glory of His name in light of our great redemption. Well, may God give us the grace and the mercy to believe and to practice these things today. Amen. Let's pray.